I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Over the last two or more years, while attention was turned to tackling the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on public health, the economy, and society as a whole, the humanitarian consequences of conflict and violence in Colombia worsened. According to the figures, the effects of armed conflict and violence were higher in 2021 than any other time in the past five years. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Mariana Chacon Lozano, ICRC's legal advisor in Bogota, Colombia, to discuss the humanitarian context and international humanitarian law and policy challenges and progress in the country. Thanks so much for joining us, Mariana. Thank you for the invitation, Lizzie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, Mariana, it's now been six years since the government of Colombia and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, an armed group formerly known as the FARC-EP and now known as the Comunes Political Party, signed this famous peace agreement, which included humanitarian issues such as the protection of children, the search for the missing and demining, as well as obligations relating to international humanitarian law in a post-agreement scenario. Can you tell us, has this post-peace agreement translated into post-conflict for Colombia? What is the situation of violence that you're seeing in the country today? Thank you for the question, Lizzie. Regrettably, no, it has not translated into post-conflict. While the peace agreement did succeed in ending the conflict between the then FARC-EP and El Comunes Party and the government, several other non-state armed groups and armed groups were still operating in the country, and they rushed to take over the territories that were left by this uh, FARC-EP at the time. Um, at the same time, there were remnants of the FARC-EP that never demobilized, they never adhered to the peace process, and since 2017, they have slowly but surely regrouped, restructured, and now have uh, become a nationwide organization again. Therefore, while we still see that as figures say, 30% of the peace agreement between the FARC-EP and the government has been implemented. There's parallel situations of violence that have become or were non-international armed conflicts. And so right now, the ICRC has six non-international armed conflicts classified in Colombia. Three oppose the government of Colombia to armed groups, and the other three oppose non-state armed groups to non-state armed groups. Regarding the first uh, type of conflict, we have the government of Colombia against the former FARC, currently not adhered to the peace agreement, which are the ones I referred to that never demobilized. The second one between the government and the Gaitanista Self-Defense of Colombia, the AGC. The third one is uh, the state versus the National Liberation Army, the ELN. And regarding conflicts between non-state armed groups, we have that the ELN is uh, fighting the AGC in Anayak. Uh, and the former FARC-EP, the never demobilized, also are classified in two different armed conflicts against other post-FARC groups. And let me explain. While they never demobilized, the former FARC, there were others that did demobilize but took up arms again because they were not in agreement with how the, the then administration was handling the peace agreement. And these are called the Second Marquetalia and the Border Commands. And they both are in conflict with this former FARC as different factions of the post-FARC universe. 
At the same time, uh, this comes uh, while the new administration of the Brazil presidency has called for a total peace process, uh, for a process in which he invited all armed groups and non-state armed groups to engage in peace negotiations with them. So while violence against the government has decreased because of ceasefires called, fighting among the groups has not decreased. And as you said, this has meant that in over the last years, humanitarian consequences have regrettably increased in the country. Thank you, Mariana. And thank you for, you know, when you are rattling off these legal classifications so expertly, it makes it sound like it's a really straightforward process to understand, but actually it's incredibly difficult to untangle these splintering of these groups, and it's not something that you really are finding on Wikipedia, you know, and it's crucial work doing this legal classification because it's applying different bodies of law. So thank you for really clearly laying that out for us. So as with any other context of violence or conflict, it's often the civilians uh, who are caught up in between uh, these clashes. Can you please tell us what the main humanitarian concerns that we're seeing there created by the clashes between these armed actors? Of course, over the last five years, for example, we've seen that massive displacement, mass displacement has increased by 360%, from 14,000 people to 52,000 people. Uh, victims of explosive devices have also increased in a wobbling 800%. So in 2017, there were 57 victims, and in 2021, there were 449. Also, we've seen an increase against um, the provision of healthcare services, uh, a 500% increase uh, from 101 uh, incidents in 2017 to 553. And I think what you pointed out is particularly relevant because indeed, while before 2016 in Colombia, we had maybe three non-state armed groups with a clear hierarchy and military organization and a central command, after 2016, the reality has been much more fluid and the structures have been difficult to follow, as you say, for classification purposes. But most importantly, the authorities that the population, the civilian population were used to have, you know, the de facto authorities often in Colombia are the armed groups that control territory, have also been difficult to follow for them. And they've been left in the midst of fighting for this territorial control. So while, again, uh, any peace agreement and any situation that will decrease the humanitarian consequences for the population is welcomed by the ICRC, it is of, of the utmost importance to keep the classification and the technical view of these uh, events in the field objective and to determine which legal framework applies so that even when we may have one peace agreement with one group, we are very much aware that there are other situations of violence that continue to create consequences and that we continue to follow up on. Thank you. And let's let's build on that point as well and, you know, take a reaction to that very grim scenario that you're painting. Um, yeah, after decades of war, the suffering continues for, for people in Colombia. So let's start turning towards some of the work being done both nationally and uh, with regard to international humanitarian assistance to counter the effects of this violence. Uh, so 
Last year, the UN hailed Colombia as having an unprecedented achievement in transitional justice. And a large part of any of ICRC's delegation work is the dissemination of international humanitarian law. That's a lot of work that your team is, is doing right now in the field. So could you outline uh, how the legal department is addressing both the humanitarian consequences that you just described and also what progress has been made in Colombia to this end? Yes, gladly. And um, to your comment, I, I think it's important to say that the legal department here works closely with the field to make sure that we are having a clear reading not only of the conflict dynamics, but of these humanitarian consequences to try to find an answer, a systemic answer for them and prevent them from happening in the future. For example, uh, the legal department has worked in a project for the last three years with the Ombuds Office in which we've diagnosed which are the uh, legal obstacles faced by migrants uh, affected by NIAC but not by non-international conflicts in Colombia, because they are a particularly vulnerable population within the population affected by NIACs. And we've worked with them in uh, issuing uh, guidelines and regulations that more properly address their needs. Often these migrants are irregular migrants, are in a situation of irregularity, and they don't uh, uh, go to the authorities to report issues, or they don't have enough information on their fear of being pointed out as not having the proper documentation. So we're working with authorities to try to find a solution to these base, based on our field experience. And uh, we're working there with the control institutions of the government. We're working with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, with, with Migración Colombia, for example. Another thing that we've been doing is that we've been working with uh, the Ministry of Health to make sure that the respect of the medical mission, the respect of the provision of healthcare for healthcare personnel is well implemented, that they are not prosecuted for providing medical services to, to non-state armed groups or the armed forces, should that be the case. We are also working on updating the manual on the medical mission, as it's called in Colombia, so that the legal frameworks applicable are more clear. We've also worked in a directive to better provide health assistance to victims of weapon contamination, of, of explosive artifacts, because... Um, in Colombia, members of non-state armed groups are not considered to be victims legally, according to the system. Hence, they cannot access certain state provision of services. However, with this directive, what we achieved, and I think it was an important achievement with the Procuraduría General of the, de la Nación, was that we separated the, the technical uh, victim con concept of victim in Colombia from the provision of immediate health services to these members should they be uh, affected by, for example, a mine. And this was issued, and I think it was a, a, a good thing. I'd like to mention that with regards to missing persons, which I, I actually did not mention, but it's one of the consequences that has increased in the last years. We are working with the special unit to search for missing persons that was created based on the peace agreement to try to provide content to the humanitarian angle that they search with and to make sure that the system to search for missing persons in Colombia is working as such as a system. Because there are, there are many institutions in Colombia that promote the search for the missing, but they're not necessarily always coordinated. So we also accompany our prod colleagues in this. And finally, because you mentioned traditional justice, we also work with a special jurisdiction for peace. They are a, a jurisdiction that was created based on the peace agreement 
to prosecute, if that's the case, uh, members of the FARC-EP and members of the armed forces uh, of the state uh, in the framework of the conflict that they had. And among other things, they have to decide who to provide amnesty for and who has committed war crimes and hence cannot be afforded one. And in the concept of war crimes, there's a lot of gray areas uh, and they have the, the task of providing the widest amnesty possible in line of protocol, additional protocol two. So we're working with them as well to fine tune certain concepts in IHL, such as hostage taking, when uh, is the police force part of the armed forces, among other IHL current topics. Thank you, Mariela. Let's go a little deeper on that point, actually. So as the appointed custodians of IHL, of international humanitarian law, a question we are regularly asked at the ICRC is what happens when international humanitarian law is violated? So can you tell us, with such a strong judicial branch in place, how is IHL enforced in Colombia? Can you lay it out for us? Well, that's an interesting and complex question. If we focus on the transitional justice mechanisms, such as the special jurisdiction for peace, I think Colombia has a one-of-a-kind experience in that the HEP, uh, this, this tribunal, has different sources of international law and national law that they can apply directly. So I, I cannot say how the results of these processes are going to be because they have not really finished one. They are in the process of analyzing and in the process of recognition and having hearings with the victims. So it's a very interesting process that has a legal side to it, a political side to it, but also a very humanitarian side to it because they are promoting a recognition by the perpetrators, participation by the victims, and the issue, the, the concept of self-sanctions, so restorative sanctions that would enable the perpetrators not necessarily to serve prison, a time in prison, but to conduct acts that will repair and give back to the communities that they affected. So that's, for me, a fascinating issue in Colombia that coexists with the ordinary justice. Colombia has a chapter that has implemented um, violations of IHL, serious violations of IHL into their criminal code. And they do conduct prosecutions on that. But at the same time, uh, I think the main focus continues to be on these transitional justice mechanisms. It is, IHL, uh, ironically, is very well known in Colombia in terms of how publicly it's used, how much it's mentioned in the media. I have never been in a context in which IHL is so known, at least at least, you know, in the tip of your tongue, it's always there. You know what it means in a general way. Regrettably, it is not always technically and profoundly well understood. So part of our job uh, in the legal department is to disseminate it in a technical and detailed way so that it's not instrumentalized or misunderstood in a context such as Colombia, in which the, the IHL paradigm and the human rights paradigm coexist all the time. Thank you, Mariana. And it's actually quite a sad indicator uh, when you're in a context where the term or the expression of the body of law, international humanitarian law, is known widely uh, because that's indicating that there's been a lot of issues uh, with regard to the laws of war. Um, but as you say, you know, we have to carry the torch in order to make sure that that's effectively enforced 
uh, and used to ultimately reduce human suffering in the context of conflict and violence. So thank you and your team for your work to this end. Um, a last question would be about the recent elections and in August when Colombia began a new political chapter with a change in government. So in this framework of a now what's called total peace initiative, how is the humanitarian community adapting the plans that you've outlined to this new administration? Well, that um, it's been it's it's been a very interesting and challenging process. Uh, the Total Peace Initiative is a massive task that the government has set for themselves, and I think it's the ICRC again welcomes any initiative that would mean that the humanitarian consequences would decrease for the population. That's certainly the case. What we are seeing is that because it's such a demanding and challenging task. Um, for example, the government is already sitting down with the ELN, one of the non-state armed groups that I mentioned, a historical uh, armed group in Colombia. And, and because of the need to move forward and to have a clear view of the humanitarian consequences, but at the same time, bring peace home in a way, you know, to make the population feel that peace is next to them already. Um, we have the feeling that the political decisions that are being made in the framework of the uh, negotiations are including humanitarian issues, but not necessarily always keeping the boundaries between them. So, uh, for example, we understand that the government needs all the tools necessary to work towards peace, but at the same time, there's still humanitarian consequences ongoing in different parts of the country, some more than others. So the humanitarian community uh, recognizes the challenge that the government has and will continue and needs to continue conducting their humanitarian action according to uh, their humanitarian standards, having humanitarian access to the communities, and yes, promoting an environment that could indirectly help with peace conversations, but not necessarily being the implementers of peace. Uh, and I think. This would, um, and I think this is true, whether there is there are peace negotiations or not. In this sense, international humanitarian law is a very powerful and useful tool to remind the parties that even while there are negotiations ongoing, there are a minimum set of obligations that they have to abide by, and that they can even be applied to continue protecting people after an armed conflict ends in a post-conflict situation um, because these humanitarian consequences, of course, will need to be followed up even after the, the, any agreement comes to fruition and can inform as well the parties on about which obligations they need to take into consideration when agreeing on these matters. So the message is human, the humanitarian space will continue working and needs to continue working based on their standards and access. Yes, there's things that are interlinked and um, interrelated. The humanitarian world, uh, the humanitarian action can help create an environment uh, that is conducive for negotiations, but it should not be taken as a direct factor or influencer on this. I'll give you an example just to finish. Uh, 
when the ICRC was involved in the peace negotiations between the FARC-EP and the government and the state of Colombia, we were facilitators and mediators with logistics, but we also provided legal advice and humanitarian advice on thematics such as uh, the protection of children, weapon contamination, and missing persons. And we can do that now as well, while keeping our mandate and working according to our principles. Thank you, Mariana. I I really appreciate you laying out these uh, very complex issues so clearly. I think the questions that I've asked you today can and have been PhDs (laughs) in and of themselves, and you've really outlined in a clear way uh, a very complex issue. Uh, So I thank you for that. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask you a question that that we ask all of our guests here at Humanity and War uh, that does not have to do necessarily with the topic that we're talking about, which is what are you reading right now? What's the book on your nightstand, if you could share that with us? Well, uh, it's a book by Oliver Sacks called uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Uh, It's a neurologist and uh, he presents fascinating cases on how the brain tricks us or actually maybe shows us reality as it is. And it helps me keep in mind that what we see is not always true and that we need to be flexible and adapt. So I would very much recommend him. He's a great author and writer. Thank you. Thank you for that recommendation. And uh, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insight and your energy and ultimately for the work that you and the legal team are doing there in Bogota and in in the field. Thank you, Lizzie, for this opportunity and uh, for all your work as well. Thank you very much, Mariana. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.